0: that's the topic that I was uh, asked to speak about. Um, obviously, this is the, the TI, so I'm going to do it from a Thomistic perspective. And of course, Aquinas didn't ever talk about intravitual fertilization or anything like that. So uh, what I'm going to do is give you some philosophical background based on Aquinas' philosophy that I think informs current Catholic teaching on assisted reproductive technology, uh, but that also can be used to uh, explain more deeply how to think about these sorts of issues. So what I'm gonna do is give you the philosophy, and then I'm gonna focus on three issues in particular, apply it to those three, and those are artificial insemination, in vitro fertilization, and surrogacy. And I think that what I've tried to do is set the talk up so that if the theoretical background is clear, then the positions that you should draw on those particular issues becomes pretty clear. You don't actually have to do a lot of work to get at, the, at those positions. It's just, it's just, it's readily apparent what you ought to think. So let's get into the philosophy. Um, Aquinas has, in my opinion, an absolutely fantastic passage in his opus on what you might call the philosophy of, of reproduction. It's about what it means to be sexed beings and what sort of responsibilities we have as beings that reproduce sexually. The passage starts in chapter 122 of book three of Aquinas' Summa Contra Gentiles. It's probably not the Summa you're thinking of, which is the Summa Theologiae, this is the other Summa. Yes, he wrote two. And just to fill out the picture, Aquinas died at the age of 49 and if you take all of his extant writings, type them up on regular 8 by 11 paper, size 12 font, add up all the pages and divide them by the number of days that he would have spent working as a Dominican in the 13th century, you get the number 10. This man produced 10 pages a day. I just want to make sure that we all have a deep sense of inadequacy <laughs> before we begin approaching the thought of the angelic doctor. But the passage is actually pretty straightforward, and in my opinion, it sets the groundwork for much sexual ethics such that if you only had this text to work on, chapter 122, book three, Summa Contra Gentiles, if you only had that text to work on, you could probably derive about 90% of Catholic sexual ethics from it pretty, re- pretty directly. Um, so what the text takes for granted is something that I think should not really be controversial, but is controversial today. And that's that human beings are a sexually dimorphic species. There are men and there are women, and that's all that there are. Aquinas didn't feel he had need the need to defend that point, so he doesn't, but I'll defend it for him or explain what it would mean for him when he's if he were to say that. For Aquinas, there are two versions or types or varieties of human, the male and the female, and this sexual difference is a matter of the body not of the soul. What this means is that being male or female means having a particular anatomical makeup and a particular set of physiological functions that allows one's body to follow one of two plans. It also means that men and women are both equally human and therefore both equally dignified on account of having the same kind of soul. But biological sex, being male or female, is a matter of the body and before anyone objects that atrinus drew this conclusion because he didn't know any better having lived in the 13th century and not knowing anything about genetics and not knowing that for example there are people who have one X chromosome without a second sex chromosome or have an XYY combination of chromosomes or has something like androgen insensitivity syndrome which might lead to a conclusion that you have more than two sexes Let me ask you a question. What is sex? Or how would you go about determining how many sexes there are? For Aquinas, a sex, being male or female, is a role that is played in procreation or in reproduction. The way you determine the number of sexes is by counting the number of roles. And from that perspective, if you look at human beings, it is clear that there are only two sexes, and there can only be two sexes. There is one who impregnates and one who is impregnated. There is one who inseminates and one who carries and bears a child, and nobody can do both. Indeed, there are some people who cannot do either of those things, but that doesn't justify saying that they belong to a third category since there is no other reproductive role other than the two identified by the terms male and female, though there are people who imperfectly attain one of those two anatomical or physiological statuses. So male and female we are, but what implications does this have for how we live? To approach this question, consider the alternative. What would our lives be like if we were asexual? What would it be like if we were to reproduce the way parthenogenic lizards do? There are, in fact, lizards that only have females. The females spontaneously get pregnant, they give birth to young. What would it be like if we were like that? Well, for one thing, there would be no marriage there would be no pair bonding. There would really be no fatherhood. And our young would also be entirely different because children, human children, require much care. And when I first became a father I was horrified to learn, since nobody bothered to tell me when my first son was born, that newborn babies have stomachs the size of grapes and therefore have to be fed every three hours. It's the worst. In short, if we were asexual, life would be a lot different. And this makes Aquinas' first point in this passage that I'm referring to very clear. To have sexual faculties is to possess enormous responsibility. He argues that the sexual organs that we have are clearly not intended to serve our own good. They exist in order that we might unite with someone of the opposite sex to produce children. And what this means is that our sexual faculties have political or social significance. They exist not to serve our private ends. And their use is something that society as a whole has an interest in. Consider what would happen, for example, if we were irresponsible with our sexual faculties. People who had no intention of committing themselves to one another would end up having children. And the children would have no one who was committed to caring for them so society would have to bear the burden. So society has a vested interest in regulating the use of our sexual faculties. And what Aquinas concludes from this is that sex ought only to take place in a context wherein any resulting children would be loved, cared for, and provided for, that is, marriage. To make use of one's sexual faculties outside of marriage, says Aquinas, is not only irresponsible but unjust. It is unjust first to any children who may be conceived, who have a right to be cared for, and whose right would thereby be neglected. Who then ought to care for them? The people who have primary responsibility for bringing them into being, that is their parents. But irresponsible use of one's sexual faculties also is unjust to the society in which one lives because the society would have to make up for the repercussions of somebody else's irresponsible behavior. So our sexual faculties have political significance, which means that their use can be appropriately regulated. Now to foreshadow a bit, if what I've said so far makes sense, then the principle admitted is that procreation can in fact be regulated by governmental authority. So it will not come as a shock when I say later on that something like surrogacy should be outlawed. But of course, there are limits to government uh, regulation of procreation. The government can't tell you how many children to have and so on. I don't wanna get into that issue too much, but the point is that in principle, because society has an interest in the use of your sexual faculties, that use can in fact be regulated. And furthermore, people rightly point out when they hear this that not all sexual activity produces children so therefore not all sexual activity needs to be regulated but at issue here is a question of legal theory and it is one that aquinas addresses in this passage for whom are laws made or in view of what ought they be promulgated the answer for aquinas is that laws are promulgated for the benefit of society in view of the whole in view of the common good. And this is a lot to unpack, so I won't do it. But, I will say this. Laws cannot be made in view of the exceptional cases, but are rather made in view of what is generally the case. Aquinas considers, for example, the following, uh, he considers the following scenario as an example. Sex ought only to be had between a man and a woman in a permanent relationship, why? Because a woman on her own, he says, does not have the resources needed to care for a child. She needs a man to help her with raising the child, for providing with her for her needs, and so on. Well, that's fine, but what about a woman, for example, who were particularly wealthy? What about a woman who had all of the material goods she needed, who could hire servants to watch her kid, so that when he wants to turn on the fan for the 500th time, instead of screaming and pulling her hair out, she can ask somebody else to do it. That may be true. There certainly exist such women. And the the general law would seem not to apply to them. But the law is not for them. The law is for everyone. And if we made laws in view of the exceptional, in that case, in this case, the wealthy and the powerful, Then the poor and the weak would end up suffering. So for the good of everyone, the general rule is that sex should only take place in a marital context. Note that this does not mean that a sterile couple cannot get married or that the old cannot get married. It also does not mean that all sex makes babies. It certainly does not. But to make this observation would be to miss the point. Part of the problem in dealing with assisted reproductive technologies is that people today tend to adopt an adult-centered perspective on procreation. We should rather adopt a child-centered one. It is true that not all sex makes babies, but it is also true that all babies are the result of some sexual activity. So confining sexual activity to marriage is a very good step to take toward ensuring that children grow up in a loving and stable environment. The state cannot tell you to have children it cannot tell you how many children to have but what it can say is if you are going to do the thing that ends up making babies then do so responsibly with this theoretical backdrop i think we are halfway to answering the questions that we have about things like surrogacy in vitro fertilization and artificial insemination the first thing to note about most assisted reproductive technologies is that they exist in two varieties, heterologous and homologous. Homologous artificial reproductive or assisted reproductive technology refers to some use of this artifice that uses gametes from a man and a woman who are married to one another. Heterologous, I'm just going to use ART for the abbreviation, means that genetic material is used from someone who is not one of the two intended parents to use today's lingo. In other words, you have Perhaps two people, three people, who know how so many people who intend to raise a child and they borrow gametes from somebody else or pay for them or whatever. That's heterologous ART. So first I'll examine heterologous ART because that's the easier one to criticize. And then we'll get to, into uh, homologous ART. The basic point about heterologous ART is that we should not mix and match the genetic lineage of children who are artificially conceived. So... If we think of this theoretical backdrop that I've already laid out, that parenthood entails enormous responsibility, and that this is why the institution of marriage exists, consider that one of the fundamental reasons why human societies have marriage as an institution, in whatever form it takes, is so that we know who is responsible for whom. Consider how vulnerable young children are, how impressionable they are, how much they learn from their parents, Consider that what we pass on to our children is not just genetic data or transcription factors. It's also a collection of habits and dispositions and skills, what, taken together, we might call culture. I remember contemplating this when I was looking at my first son when he was five months old. I was holding him as he was sleeping, and I looked at his face, and I began to see all his, the lineage of all of his features coming from his genetic past. I saw my father-in-law's eyes, my wife's nose, my cousin's ears, my mother's chin, and my own abnormally large head. Each of us is a mosaic of genetic lineages. But genetics do not give us a full picture. We inherit from our parents not only our genes, but also our language, our culture, our means of understanding the world. And these things are not easily separable, that is, genetics and culture nature and nurture. Consider that the nature-nurture debate has been raging interminably for decades, and that it is not at all clear where genetics ends and where nurture begins. Consider the emergence of epigenetics as a category, as a distinct science studying how exactly it is that nature affects the activation of genes. Consider for a second just how important our cultural heritage is, People develop skills, habits, and dispositions over time, and these things accumulate. And if everything goes as it should, then cultures advance over time, and each subsequent generation has a life that was better than the one that preceded it. But if you break the chain, if you break one link in this chain, then the entire process, perhaps centuries long, of cultural development is lost. When I was growing up, my father was a house painter. I worked for him for a number of years, and one of my co-workers was a man who had immigrated to the United States from Latin America and had very little formal education. This man would frequently ask me questions about finance and about education. He wanted to save up money to send his kids to school, but he didn't understand much about the American educational system. So understandably, he was baffled when he found out that after going to college, I was going to go back to college for more college to get something called a master's degree. And then I was going to go back to college again to become a doctor, but not the medical kind. He assumed that this was because the more time you spent in school, the more money you'd make. So he was baffled yet again that I told him when I told him that I would never be rich. But the reason I recount all this is for one simple point. The thing that most astounded this man was the very concept of saving money. It had literally never occurred to him before that you could simply put money aside with each paycheck and over time that pile of money would grow such that you could buy something very expensive with it. Nobody had bothered telling him that in his education, in his upbringing. But in my case, the concept of saving money and the practice of of doing it had been drilled into me since I was a child. I already knew how to do it. It seemed obvious. But for this man, it had never even occurred to him consider another example. A few years ago in the Washington Post, they reported on the latent effects of 16th century Jesuit missions among the Guarani people of South America. Jesuit and Franciscan missions were founded among these people and operated there for centuries. The Franciscans arrived first and then the Jesuits were later expelled in 1767, after which the Franciscans continued to operate. So the Jesuits operated in this part of the world for about 200 years and spent less than half the time there than the Franciscans did, and they left 250 years ago. Here's the amazing thing. Today, 250 years later, there is a positive correlation between a person's proximity to a former Jesuit mission and their income, their likelihood of being literate, and the number of years of education that they complete. But there is no such correlation found with proximity to any Franciscan mission. What's the difference? The Franciscans focused on feeding and caring for people and the Jesuits focused on education. The effects are measurable 250 years later. 250 years after the fact, the effects are still there. So the point of all this is to emphasize how important our cultural heritage is. And the question that it raises is this, who is responsible for passing this on? Before the advent of ART, the answer was obvious. The parents. If they can't or don't, then somebody else should. Because, but before ART, everyone, every human being was or should have been educated by their parents who have the primary role and responsibility to educate their children. But now we have to ask who a person's parent is. And that is not a good place to be. Is a parent someone who is genetically related to a child? Is a mother one who gives birth to a child or one who provides the egg from which the the child is conceived? Or what about mitochondrial DNA, since now apparently that's also a thing? Or is a parent one who intends to raise a child? In the past, we would simply have been able to say that a parent was one who was responsible for having conceived a child, which means that great care, nectar of the gods, thank you. In the past, we could simply say that a parent was one who is responsible for having conceived a child, which means that great care ought to be taken in matters regarding conception such that conception did not occur unless one was able to handle its consequences. But now we have to revisit the very question of parenthood. The biggest problem with this arrangement is that it places us in a world of legal positivism. We have to invent categories to deal with new situations. We can't rely on customs. We can't rely on nature. Note that no society, including our own, has the legal infrastructure for dealing with this problem. This is because no form of ART was developed with the interests of children in mind, but were always developed with the interests of adults in mind. ART exists in order to fulfill the lifestyle preferences of adults, not to do what is best for children. The old system was child-focused, the new system is adult-focused. Nobody who starts with the question, how can we do something that benefits the lives of the next generation, would answer it by saying, I know. We should conceive children in test tubes, let them grow as embryos in a petri dish, select them on the basis of an ideal phenotype, and then subject them to implantation in a woman's endometrium, which they have only a one in seven chance of surviving. People just do stuff. That is in their interests, and then everyone else has to deal with the fallout. Consider what happened, for example, in the first commercial surrogacy su- surrogacy case that ever took place. I call it commercial because this was the first time in history that a person was paid to be a surrogate. Surrogacy has been around for th- thousands of years. Just think, for example, of, of of Isaac and Ishmael in Genesis. I mean, that's Ishmael was conceived by a surrogate. That's you know, what Hagar was. Um, in in the first instance of commercial surrogacy took place in New Jersey in 1986. A woman was contracted to carry a child for a couple and after nine months of carrying the baby, she decided she didn't want to give it up. I mean, kind of understandable. Pretty, grow a pretty close attachment to a child that you've been gestating for nine months. So the intended parents sued her and won in the New Jersey State Supreme Court. The court did not like the surrogacy contract at all, but thought that it was in the best interest of the child to award custody to the intended parents. There are many more stories like this, each with different outcomes, and we have a patchwork of legal policy in the United States about surrogacy because the policies are always developed on the basis of individual cases, not because anyone thought this through. This reality demonstrates two things. These sorts of arrangements are not done with the interests of children in mind, which means that it is unjust to them. And secondly, parenthood is no longer based on nature by default. Instead, we live in a world of juridical positivism that hinders our ability to know who is responsible for whom, and this system was not developed on on the basis of children's interests. Everyone is a tapestry of heritages, both genetic and cultural. Our backgrounds shape us so fundamentally that we want, reasonably, to learn about them. Why else are Americans obsessed with discussing their ethnicities to the bafflement of people from other nations who can simply presume that if you are English, then you are an Englishman? Why else does 23 and me exist? To see how important this is, you can look up the website anonymousus.org, which details the personal experiences of people ...who were denied the opportunity to learn who their biological parents, typically fathers, were... ...and about the anguish that this caused them. All of us are products of the past, and we rightly want to understand our own pasts... ...genetic or otherwise, so that we can understand ourselves. And this is why heterologous ART of any kind is problematic... First, even before you know who all the genetic contributors or gestational contributors to a child are, the role and responsibility that each one has regarding the life of the child is ambiguous and is figured out after the fact. Second, the cases wherein one of these contributors remains anonymous, as in the case of anonymous sperm or egg donation, using scare quotes because they're normally paid, it's not a gift is particularly egregious and in clear violation of the rights of a child. Given how much we are a product of our heritage, it is clearly not good policy to routinely bar children from knowing about their biological forebears. Now let's consider homologous ART, the question of a married couple who use their own genetic material to conceive a child artificially. What I've done in this talk so far is develop a theoretical backdrop based on Aquinas and drawn some conclusions. and Now I have to go back to the Thomistic backdrop a little bit. As I said before, Aquinas doesn't talk about IVF. So I'm going to talk about the basic Catholic position, which is that sex and procreation belong together and ought not to be separated. One ought not to be sought in the absence of the other. Trying to sterilize sex neutralizes its purpose and turns it into a game while trying to procreate without sex, turns the child into an object of its parents' desires. In a proper marital relationship, one is supposed to be disposed. The act of, the the marital act and the life lived out as a married couple is supposed to dispose the spouses to accept children as a gift that is given to them and not to make children on their own. So for example, Something like low tubal ovum transfer, the church doesn't say everything is bad. There are certain things you can do, right? Certain things like a low tubal ovum transfer, which is when you take an egg, transfer it beyond blockage in a fallopian tube, such that a married couple can otherwise conceive as they normally would, this is perfectly acceptable. The problem with ART is not in the use of instruments or in sometimes it's called artificial reproductive technology. It's not the fact that it's artificial that it's a problem. The problem is the separation between procreation and sex. So let's look at IVF, in vitro fertilization. IVF involves the procurement of gametes, either through masturbation on the part of the man or ovarian hypersimulation with egg retrieval on the part of the woman. It then involves the combination of these gametes to make embryos, which are then placed on a culture in a Petri dish. After some time, the embryos are then selected for implantation on the basis of anatomy, after which several embryos are implanted into a woman's endometrium, most of which typically do not survive this process. After this, if multiple embryos implant and gestate successfully into the fetal stage of development, a woman is typically offered the option of selectively reducing, euphemistically aborting, her pregnancy so as to carry just one baby to term. The reason I lay all this out is because I want you to consider just how many times in this process a person's choice intervenes. It is not hard to see how in such a process a person can habitually become disposed to see an unborn child not as a child but as an artifact, as a product. And like other products, if the child does not meet the expectations of the one who ordered it, it can be discarded. A perfect example of this can be found in the New York Times story of a woman pseudonymously called Jenny, who at the age of 45 found herself to be pregnant after several rounds of IVF. She was pregnant with twins, and at 14 weeks pregnant, she was choosing to eliminate one of the pregnancies because she was afraid of the burden of having twins. Here is what she said, I'll quote her directly. If I had conceived these twins naturally, I wouldn't have reduced this pregnancy because you feel like there's a natural order and you don't want to disturb it. But we created this child in such an artificial manner, in a test tube, choosing an egg donor, having the embryo placed into me, and somehow making a decision about how many children to carry seems to be just another choice. The pregnancy was also consumerish to begin with, and this became yet another thing that we could control. Not only does this demonstrate the point that I made earlier, that IVF and other forms of ART cause us to treat children like objects, it raises another disturbing question. If a pregnancy is to be reduced, on what basis is this decision made, and what are its implications? Now for artificial insemination, this process is certainly less technically involved than IVF, and it certainly does not admit of as much arbitrary decision making. In the case of a woman or couple who use the sperm other than the man to whom the woman is married, this kind of artificial insemination is problematic for all the reasons that I already discussed. It separates a a child from their heritage. I actually have a neighbor who decided to do this on her own. And let me tell you, having kids is, at minimum, a two-person job. What my neighbor said was that she always dreamed of being a mother and didn't feel like waiting any longer to have a man come around, so she went to a bank to procure sperm and did everything herself. And now every social media post that she makes is about how difficult her life is. I can only imagine. When you have a newborn, having a minute to take a shower is hard enough, when you have somebody there to help you, when you're on your own, I don't see how it's even possible. But even if artificial insemination is used by a married couple, it still breaks the principle that sex and procreation belong together, which means that it does habituate people in the wrong way, that it cultivates the wrong dispositions regarding children. And once you go down that path, it's difficult to draw lines, moral lines, that are not arbitrary. Now surrogacy is a particularly concerning problem, and the first thing I want to point out is that surrogates are typically called surrogate mothers, which indicates that people really do think of them as mothers, and which means that they are separated from their children. So a child is being separated from its mother, and this is particularly concerning. A child's relationship begins in the womb with its mother. and is already established before the child is born. Furthermore, a child's first interactions with its mother outside the womb are crucial for healthy development. I'm a seminary administrator. That means that I look over the application files for prospective seminarians. And every application I've looked at includes a psychological evaluation of the seminarian in question. And every psychological evaluation starts with an evaluation of the manner in which the person was born. From my perspective, I cannot see how it is in a child's interest to plan to separate it from its mother after it is born. It cannot be anything but traumatic. But there are also concerns to raise not just about the children who are brought into the world via surrogates, but about the women who act as surrogates. Surrogacy represents the commodification of a woman's body, wherein she rents her body to someone else. It's not hard to see how this puts a woman in a vulnerable position with regard to whoever hires her. Most surrogates are poor women who already have children of their own and are contracted to be surrogates by people who not only come from different economic classes, but from different countries. This puts surrogate mothers at a disadvantage regarding contract disputes where such contracts are even legal. It is also hard to make the case that a surrogate mother is providing a service, since gestating a child is a biological function over which one does not have control. The the woman is not an artist making an artifact, but a person undergoing a natural (laughs) biological process with regard to which she does not have or cannot have any skill. Furthermore, the view that a woman can simply do what she wants with her reproductive equipment is based on two problematic assumptions. The first is the classical liberal assumption that we are all simply autonomous agents who negotiate with each other in order to come up with contracts that further our interests. This is problematic for many reasons, but I'll just point out that it is clearly the case that children have rights and that they are not autonomous agents who negotiate with their parents for care. Second, this argument implies that parental responsibilities are a matter of choice. You can choose to be responsible for a child or not. This, of course, implies that parental responsibilities can simply be abandoned at will. I do not think it is hard to see how devastating it would be for a society that generally adopted such a principle, since then you would have no grounds for telling anyone that they had a moral responsibility to care for any particular child." Imagine if, we were moral, if it were morally acceptable for a father simply to say, I don't feel like raising these kids anymore, and out. A father has moral obligations to his children because he is responsible for begetting them, not because he chooses to have such obligations. I would argue that a surrogate mother, who is in some sense truly a mother, has obligations to the child whom she is gestating obligations that she cannot fulfill. I would further argue that she is not normally a malicious agent in such an arrangement, but is made to agree to terms that put her in a place where she has moral obligations that she cannot fulfill to a child who is, in a sense, rightly hers. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the The Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks